Welcome to Reading Between the Reels. I'm Matt Leader. And I'm Craig Dickinson. Today on the show, we are looking at fantastic beasts and where to find them. As you guys are, I'm sure you're aware, uh, there is a new Fantastic Beasts uh, coming out next week by the time this thing drops. Uh, And so we thought it'd be a great idea to go back and look at the first of the prequel series. And so that's what we're going to do tonight. And so, Matt, I have to ask, what are your some of your overall thoughts on Fantastic Beasts and where to find them? So, you know, I I think really the one word I'd use is just kind of delightful. Uh, This is just kind of a delightful film. It captures a lot of the magic that I kind of fell in love with, with the Harry Potter books and movies. Um, Musically, I think that uh, it ends up capturing quite a bit of of kind of the early magic uh, from. Oh, I'm blanking on the name. The composer for the early Harry Potter movies. Oh, John Williams. John Williams. That's it. Yeah. (laughs) That guy. The maestro. (laughs) Um, like I actually didn't realize this for a while, but the first, I think three films are yep. scored by John Williams in, in the Harry Potter, uh, movie franchise. And, uh, th- he sets up a lot of the motifs and a lot of the, you know, kind of musical cues that, that live on throughout the rest of the mo- movies. And, um, there were several moments in in this movie that the score reminded me of that early work of, of John Williams. So that was actually just, that was really fun. And I think that adds a lot to that magical, wondrous sense. So I, I really enjoy the movie. How about you, Craig? Yeah, no, I, I enjoyed it too. Uh, I like the way you described it. I, I just, I remember when I saw, I think I saw the trailer before I knew the movie was coming out, which usually I'm kind of more plugged in, but uh, was pretty excited that we would because I loved the Harry Potter movies and, and the books. I read them a couple of times, and and I, I I agree that this really feels like it's a very welcome return to that, and that's kind of the marketing too, you know, return to the magic type of uh, vibes. And and uh, it's interesting that it is uh, very much in you know in the canon, and it builds on the established mythology, but it's kind of a more grown up Harry Potter movie. Uh, in the, in the sense, not just the fact that the protagonists are adults versus versus kids, but it covers some some kind of heavy ground and some some big themes. Talking about you know the rightful places of the Muggles versus the the Wizarding worlds and Grindelwald's you know philosophy and all that. It's it's got some kind of heavier stuff in it, but it doesn't feel out of place to me. It feels like it's kind of a natural extension of that. And so you know one of the big questions that that I had watching it this time, and I've seen it several times, was viewing order and that's something i kind of want to readdress uh at the end and just to be thinking about like it you know it's set earlier and so it's technically a prequel but if you were introducing your kids to harry potter would you start here or would you come back here because you would, de- you would definitely come back right and I, and I think think you would and i want to kind of explore a little bit more about that at, at the end um but i also want to say that the music is great, and we'll talk about that too. I just thought also that it's just a gorgeous movie to watch. I think it's there's a lot of gold, uh, very soft lighting. Um, it's you know it's an award winner for costume design, uh, and that is fantastic as well. And just it's it just really is a fun, enjoyable, immersive movie. Mm-hmm. I think uh, one thing that I kind of enjoyed about the lighting of the film was that it wasn't like super dark. There are a 
there seems to be kind of a trend in recent TV shows and movies where cinematographers will, will darken things and go for kind of more quote unquote natural lighting where it has to be kind of motivated by something. So there's a candle or there's a fire, you know, there's something that that is quote unquote giving off the light, even though on the actual film set, that's that's typically not, you know, that they'll fake the light from a, right. a, a fire, but it's motivated by something within the fiction of the world. And this film, like you said, you mentioned like the soft lighting, everything is very visible, even in, in some of the darker moments. Um, there's kind of a cleanness to it, but I kind of enjoy that. Like it, it's just, it was, it is a refreshing movie in a visual sense. I get kind of bogged down sometimes in some, some films that we watch where it gets so dark that it's just hard to kind of distinguish everything that's going on. Yeah. No, this movie is, is not that it's, it's very clear to see, see what's happening even at the beginning. Uh, which is is very dark, uh, and you only get the silhouettes, and that's one of the shots I had initially. That you see the silhouettes of the Aurors going to to take on Grindelwald, and then you have this great shot of just the back of his head. Uh, and so we don't review, see we we know who it is because the very next thing is is the uh, kind of the exposition through the the newspaper and whatnot, and we can kind of figure out oh that was meant to be Grindelwald. Uh, but one thing I noticed this time that I really thought was cool, because I've always liked that shot, is the very first time that we see Graves, a.k.a. Grindelwald's, you know, alias, we see him from the front, but then almost immediately we see him from the back in almost exactly the same shot. Uh, and it's really kind of, I think, a beautiful piece of, of foretelling, and they have you know some, kind of the same hairstyle and everything, too. So it's kind of a, a cool nod to those of us that are paying attention uh, that's, that that's happening. Uh, I also really enjoyed, um, it's funny, you mentioned the light and how much I, I like the light, but some of the things that I pointed out were dark stuff. So the first time that we see uh, Graves again and then Credence meeting, they're very much in shadow and we mm -hmm. can not really see uh, the faces. And it's interesting that, you know, they're, they're trying to hide from, you know, the, out the people in the film, like the other characters, but they're also hiding it from us. And so we're uh, let in on things very, very slowly. And I just, I really appreciate how deliberate those choices are. Oh yeah. Uh, I also think that it's interesting. Uh, they use early on the newspaper to kind of, as like, I, I always wish they would hold it like just a hair longer. So yeah. I have more time to read it, but they kind of use that, which feels like to me kind of an homage to uh, uh, Alfonso Curran's, uh, Prisoner of Azkaban movie, mm -hmm. where there's a lot of use of posters and papers and movements toward those to kind of signify, you know, uh, like information, kind of a little information dump uh, for the audience. Yeah, that's uh, very similar to something else I had too, where, you know, you mentioned I, I kind of want to want it to linger a little bit. Like it's, that's why it works is because it, it you know, it keeps, keeps you moving. It's kind of the same thing the first time they go into the briefcase and you're, you're looking at all of the creatures in there. You just get a glimpse and, uh, but you want to see more of, of each of these things. You know, there's more to it than you're actually seeing. And it reminds me a bit of uh, like the cantina scene in, in the original Star Wars where you get, glimpses enough to kind of I, I could probably pick out you know six to seven different creatures um but you knew there's 20 other ones in there that you haven't seen and you want to see more it's like they're giving you just enough uh, to kind of to whet the appetite but not enough to to bore you with it 
anything uh, else with, with color? Um, we've talked about camera work a little bit. And there was a couple other things I noticed. Um, how much Credence's world is very monochrome. Mm. Where he lives, I thought was really interesting. Other than the very bright and colorful mural of the, uh, the you know, the second Salemers with the yeah. broken wand and the fire and stuff. But, you know, it, his, and his, it's very his black and white. Depressing. Yeah. You know, and I, I think that it's like an interesting choice story-wise to go with, I don't know what you would call them, like conspiracy theorists. <laughs> sure. <laughs> like uh, of that age where it's like, you know, the witches are real. I, of course, we know that's true within the fiction. So, uh, but it's like this weird kind of like Puritan sect mm-hmm. of like, yeah. you know, and so I think that's that's a good catch with kind of the, the more monochrome kind of muted colors in the, the orphanage. Um, but I also think that it's just, it's like, it's almost kind of a fun nod to American history because like the film itself, we haven't really mentioned this, like takes place in America, which is very different than, you know, because Harry Potter is very, very British in many ways. And this is kind of introducing a larger world to, you know, the world that uh, Rowling created in the books. And so it's like, that's, to me, that was kind of like a fun nod to American roots, American history of like the Puritans and being kind of ups, up, uptight you know, people about that kind of stuff. Not that they're, you know, good, but uh, I found that kind of a, a nice tip of the hat. Yeah. As we're, as we're talking, I'm, I'm realizing something I should have noticed earlier. Like, you know, they, it's black and white because that's how they see the world, right? Yeah. It's complete lack of nuance. Yeah. Well, that's, that's exactly what I thought you were kind of getting at with the muted colors. <laughs> it's like, they don't see the fullness of like the truth of the world. They don't accept it. Mm-hmm. Where like the the world they see is black and white's muted, uh, and because they won't accept like magic, right? Yeah, that isn't where I was at yet. See, I just need to talk to you, and it just comes out. That's that's part of the the beautiful of the organicness of this. Uh, anything else, um, cinematography wise, that you, that you want to cover? Anything else that struck you as particularly interesting? So I I do want to just kind of to like jump around a little bit with this because I think what I enjoyed about like the lighting and the cinematography is how much it kind of luxuriates in the setting and design. You mentioned mm-hmm. that was it was an Oscar that they won for uh yeah for uh for costume design, for costuming actually. yeah yeah but I mean it all flows together sure it, it definitely fit you know it's 1920s New York and it feels like that but it, a, you and know, what, and a what, like, twisted version yes but like what a fun world to kind of visit as it were. And it feels in some ways kind of like uh, like a historical set piece because mm-hmm. a lot of the outside uh, nomad world is is that 1920s where every, every guy's wearing a suit. Uh, you know, some are nicer than others, but, uh, you know, the women are kind of in their, their 1920s flapper, you know, where they got the speakeasy uh, with with the, the magical pictures and stuff. And like you mentioned how there's like a lot of gold. It feels like a lot of gold and blue and these kind of tones of like both warmness and just kind of luxury in a sense where it's just, it's not afraid to kind of wallow in the 1920s-ness of of the setting. And so like from that perspective, I think it's just like a really fun setting for the, the film to take place in. 
Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, it's, I just kept having, I had gold everywhere. Like every thing, like every aspect that I looked at, I was like, wow, there's more gold here. I saw that with set decoration too. The, the bank is just super opulent. Tons. You know, everything. Of, yes. Yeah. I noticed yeah. that too. It's, you know, it's before the crash, right? So it's <laughs> like, we're living high on the hog up until all this comes crashing down. But yeah. And, and it adds, you know, it adds to the escapism too. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact that it's you know, this very specific time period, that's not, it's kind of, fits foreign to us. I mean, it's almost, you know, Harry Potter is very much, you know, they, the, you can just be described as, as low fantasy, right? There's like fantasy layered on top of ours, but this almost feels a little more high fantasy just because you also have that time period um, so separate from ours as well. You know, it's it's not the 21st century. It's so far, it's a hundred years ago. So I also, there's a lot more. I also think that there's a lot of fun with some of the props, like the suitcases, the, the switcheroo that you have. And, yeah. you know, to your point earlier about like, would you watch, even though this is chronologically earlier, you have to watch it later, partly because some of the gag and like the setup of the plot is the fact that the muggles can't know about, you know, the wizarding right. world. And even though that's, that is touched on, like it's not touched on as deeply as like watching the rest of the films or reading the books. And like the little switcheroo is, is kind of uh, a fantastic little trick because it's something that we don't notice. And I, I honestly forgot to look for the switch, you know, but I, I bet if we went back, you would probably see uh, Eddie Redmayne put the, the his suitcase down and then Dan uh, Fogler, uh, Kowalski, pick, pick it up, right? And a little sleight yeah. of hand. Yeah, I looked for that too. And I think it's, it might even be just out of frame. It's, it's the way they do it. You see him move it. It's, he puts his suitcase really close mm-hmm. to the wall. And it's like, if you would have just set it right next to you, then none of this adventure would happen. <laughs> I think we need it. We need the movie to happen. That's, that's yeah. part of the, that's part of the fun. But it, it is a great gag just to like, you know, these guys have the same looking suitcase. So. And then they, they, they open it up in the pastries. Yeah. That's, that's great, fantastic. Great. <laughs> I mean, I, I just, I have to say this. I love, Kowalski, I love the fact that when he oh, goes yeah. to the bank, his business plan is just a suitcase full of pastries. Like that's fantastic. I yeah. love that. Yeah, he he he's fantastic in this. Uh, Fogler's great in this. Yeah, he's just oh yeah. Can you smell that? That you know, smell that zest, and he just clearly has, you know, just relish for what he can do and what he you know he loves food. Yeah, you know? he's he he's so idealistic uh, in that moment, and then it just comes crashing down until. You know, he goes on this adventure. Isn't that like the perfect like match for uh, Scamander, like Newt's uh, optimism and like worldview of like the magical creatures? I love that. Yeah. So they're both idealists. Yeah, exactly. I mean, different topics, but they're they got that same mentality. So I didn't think about that until you mentioned it. But that's really they're kind of built in the same mold, as it were. Nice. It kind of foils for each other. Yeah. Um, I did, I did want to point out, um, a couple of things that I liked, really liked in, in, in sound and soundtrack. We talked a little bit about the music already on just a couple of things I want to touch on as well, but I've always enjoyed And It's again, it fits, it's the same universe as the other Harry Potter movies. So you still get, um, some similar things. Like it's kind of like a bubble sound when we like, when they walk through the, the bank for the first time, like that's kind of there. And it almost is like that effect as well. Like visually that it's like behind this thing that the, the way they distort things, um, from the muggle view or the nomad view into the magical view. I was like that, that audio cue is, is kind of fun. 
uh, as well. And just the fact that there's wind and rain inside the briefcase. If you don't really, you, you hear it before you see it, uh, which is fun, which kind of adds to the, the scale of the, uh, the briefcase. It's a really cool way to kind of use audio cues to, to let you know how big the suitcase is inside. Uh, and that's fun. You know, we mentioned uh, John Williams' earlier work. So we have Hedwig's theme at the beginning, just a little bit that it's almost like, you know, it almost functions a little bit like the 20th Century Fox logo with Star Wars. Bit. Yeah. You know, where you're like, yeah, okay, this is familiar. I know where I'm at. Uh, and then and then that launches into a new Fantastic Beast theme, which is which is great. You know, we have, um, one second here, we have uh, James Newton Howard, who we've talked about before uh, when we did Batman Begins. You know, he's done tons of films, over 100 films. And so, um, you know, he's a, he's obviously a pro and his, his score is is fantastic. Some new themes, right? We got, we talked about um, the Fantastic Beast theme. There's Grindelwald has a theme. Newt has a like a very hopeful theme, kind of kind of jaunty piano theme. Um, just some great, and then diegetic music too, right? We get that 1920s era of music in the Goldstein's apartment, and also like there's a vocal performance by a house elf, mm-hmm. um, which is just a lot of fun. Very unique. I mean, the music is very evocative of that that flapper 1920s, like what you would expect from that era right um i'm not i'm not an expert in music i'm not a musician so i, I can't like <laughs> describe it fully but it's like when you hear it you're kind of like yeah that's kind of what i would like expect which but again that's kind of fun it's part of that set piece right the music is kind of part of that woven into making it feel like the 1920s uh vibe uh, throughout the film for me I was thinking about this, like how to explain this. And what I came up with is like sometimes when you are like tasting something, tasting food, um, tasting wine would be a good example. And sometimes you just get like a hint of something else. Like you get a hint of, of blackberry or something like that, right? Or you get a hint of time when you're eating a meal. That's kind of how the soundtrack soundtracks feel to me is... Um, they will kind of have these little moments of like, oh, that kind of reminds me of this feeling or like that that music that's evocative of the 1920s, that flapper, right? It's not what they listen to, obviously, because it was written, uh, you know, in like 2016 or whatever. But it, it, it just has that that flavor to it. And there was one moment when we were, when I was watching it and what it struck me was that sounds like home alone <laughs> and i hate i'm forgetting the, the exact moment when i heard it but it was just like that sounds like john williams like that that's what it reminded me of and so that's you know when i was mentioned earlier how it feels like it's got that kind of john williams feel to it is it it just had some string of notes some melody whatever it was uh and you know maybe it was you know a riff on uh harry potter uh theme because you know, Williams did a bunch of that too, but whatever it was, the theme, uh, you know, the, the musical flavors just hit me with this movie. And that is one of the biggest reasons why I think this film captures that magic of the other earlier Harry Potter films is that music gets in there and hits those flavors just right. Yeah, you know, that speaks very much to the the fact that they brought everybody back, right? That you have David Yates who had done like the last four Harry Potter movies as your director, you know, and then you've got JK Rowling actually doing 
you know, the screenwriting. She actually wrote the script for this film. And so you very much have like, this is going to be very much connected. It is in that universe. It is not going to be, it's going to feel like it should. It's going to feel like a Harry Potter movie with a twist, but it is, you know, it's going to hit all those same literally notes um, for us as we, as we watch the film. You know, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned uh, Fogler earlier on the performances. Uh, Eddie Redmayne is fantastic as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there, is there anything in particular you want to point out about performances that uh, we haven't touched on just yet? Um, I, I, the biggest thing is that I really enjoyed Colin Farrell, and yeah. and that was my biggest disappointment at the end. <laughs> is is he when, was gone? Yeah, uh, when he was replaced by Johnny Depp. I think Johnny Depp's a fine actor, but like I really enjoyed Colin Farrell's performance. Like mm-hmm. it felt more nuanced than the script kind of set him up to be like pretty early on the script made it like fairly obvious that he wasn't like on the up and up he he was not a good guy but i think that colin farrell's performance kind of hits a pretty nice note where it's not obvious in his performance per se i think in the overall like editing with him meeting uh with uh, Ezra Miller uh, as as Credence in like the shadows. It's like okay, right? You know, I I kind of get where that's going, um, but I I think overall the performances were really good. I particularly enjoyed Colin Farrell. Uh, Catherine Watterson has a, a nice, almost kind of uptight and shrill performance. Like she's just like an uptight character, meaning right, mm-hmm. and she plays that off really well. But uh, Dan Fogler as Kowalski's my absolute favorite. Um, I love him. Yeah, he's fantastic. Uh, a couple things I wanted to kind of build off of what you had said um, about um, Water- Catherine Watterson's uh, Tina Goldstein being kind of uptight is the way that they are dressed, her and her sister. Mm-hmm. Right, Her sister is is very feminine in the way her clothes, uh, the way she's dressed in. And Tina is not. She's almost genderless, if not masculine, in the way that she's that she presents herself. Uh, up until you know they go to the speakeasy, and then it's like, oh, okay. So she's also this has this side of her personality, and so a brilliant costume. Again, it's an Academy Award winner for costume design. They knew what they were doing, but I just think that really fits her persona, and she just leaned into that very stiff, very formal uh, persona. Uh, speaking of stiff, though, uh, Eddie Redmayne playing Newt like he's on the autism spectrum. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not, I don't think it's actually been fully confirmed that that's what he was doing, but it feels very much like he has Asperger's, uh, with, especially with the lack of eye contact, which is, I think, one of his most telling characteristics as the character, uh, which I thought was interesting this time that I was looking just to, I wanted to pay as much attention to that particular aspect as I could. And then I noticed, that when he is with Tina and she's about to die in that execution chamber, mm-hmm. he looks her right in the eye. Mm-hmm. And it's really telling that, you know, that he is making that step to make sure she listens to him and trusts him. And really you see from then on the rest of the film that he is making a point of looking her in the eye. And I just thought that was what an awesome choice. I mean, obviously he's a fantastic actor, but I just thought what a really subtle thing that most people will will miss. I've missed it several times. You know, I've seen this movie, as I mentioned before, several, several times. And so 
only while I was intentionally looking for facial expressions that I pick up that, you know, subtle choice. That's fantastic. I, I did not notice that. I do think uh, Eddie Redmayne it, it is like peaking right there is like Newt's commander feels this awkward, but brilliant and sympathetic. And he has the sympathy for, you know, the, the magical animals and stuff. And you get a sense of that. He's like, just like a good person, you know, and that is kind of revealed as the story goes. We can kind of guess from Harry Potter, like it's a Harry Potter film. It's going to deal with kind of good and evil. Right. Um, but you just get the sense that through his actions, like he's out there to save, he's very much like a, um, a zoologist. He's, he's out there trying to preserve and educate. And like, that's just really noble causes that he's working towards. And so that's something where he's like a very admirable character. Uh, and you know, that comes, that kind of just shines through with his performance. Agreed. Uh, I'm curious what you thought about Ezra Miller's performance. I thought it was good. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm I'm a fan of Ezra Miller. I mean, I I, I love him as Barry Allen as well in, in you know Justice League and whatnot. I I really appreciate it. Like speaking of eyes down too, you know, he very much and hunches. He looks like a wounded animal. Mm -hmm. You know the way he kind of presents himself through most of the film. And like with that, there's I don't think there's like a lot of range for him. Like through a lot of the film where he's kind of being very subdued. So that's where it's just like, I think it was fine. Uh, but yeah. it was, it was definitely restrained. Yeah. And he's a fairly tall dude. And mm -hmm. so he, but he kind of shrinks himself down where he's almost barely there when he's in the presence of his adopted mother. So, you know, again, doesn't have a whole lot to do until he, you know, becomes fully revealed as, as the obscurus, but, um, Solid, I thought. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Uh, anything else with performance? We mentioned costumes. Obviously, one hair and makeup is fantastic as well. It very much feels authentic to the 1920s. Uh, before we move on to anything else in setting and design? I don't think so. I mean, everything was, you know, we, we kind of touched on the, the major things that I wanted to talk about. It's not a highly quotable film. I, I, I looked for a, a thing that I would that I would quote. There's a lot of lines that I, I really like, but it's not a, thing, a movie that I that I quote. There's some things we saw with Graves where he kind of hints at things, you know, about so it's useless without the host, about the obscurus, which mm -hmm. is kind of a oh wait a minute, you know, and you see Newt react that way too. But just some things on a, on the second rewatch, we're like obviously that's you know, so we get a nod, yeah, <laughs> right. Um, one thing I really liked this time that I, that I had not picked out before was that you have, as far as setting goes, is that you have this final battle, uh, in the subway and it's literally underground, but it's also figuratively underground because no one can see it. Mm -hmm. And it's really is about keeping, you know, the wizarding world under wraps. And I just thought, oh, it's like, what a brilliant place to stage your final battle. Yeah. And speaking of that, uh, Newt doesn't do very well, <laughs> like <laughs> no. with the actual like spell casting, right? And that's kind of a uh, and a, uh, it's something I appreciate in the sense of like he's he's a zoologist, he's not a fighter, <laughs> uh, 
and like he no. will fight for something like he's got a fighting spirit but he's not like a warrior he's an animal caretaker and like you kind of get that sense when he's fighting graves like he's not he's he's really overmatched right well yeah he's he's not someone who would le- legitimately do that so it takes a lot for him to right um, to get into that, you know, he's, he's not a fighter first, he, but he will fight when pushed and when it, you know, when it matters. And this is something that he has found that, you know, he's fighting for something. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's a good catch. Uh, I also really liked the Makuza logo. I thought that was cool that yeah. it was very much kind of a take on the presidential seal, but a lot more aggressive. Yeah. I thought, uh, and then the, you know, most of, again, most of Makuza is opulent. Back to that again. It's it's enormous, right? The way that you have these extreme high angles and, and everything to show it off. But you have this interrogation room, like this cold metal, which I thought was a really interesting show. Like, why do you have this place? And they were totally okay with just like executing a couple of wizards, <laughs> you know, for like letting some stuff out yeah. you know I mean, that might let other muggle or nomads know what's going on yeah. so there's a dark side to that place oh for sure i mean i think you can make the argument that there's a dark side to american foreign policy in general uh or the cia any or, country's foreign foreign policy y- in yes, general but sure yeah sure but sure. i mean it's being sent to america specifically exactly you can i think you can make a connection there um I, they even mentioned like I forget, I forget exactly what they say, but um, someone's like, you know, what are your impressions of the wizarding world in America? And Newt doesn't hold back. He's no, he's not overly impressed with, with the state of affairs uh, in the wizarding world in America. So it's not really touched on much, which is why I, I didn't really bring, you know, it's, it's kind of uh, spoken and then dropped and they don't really touch on it again. But, you know, I think that's there. No, definitely. Uh, and that, you know, there's a physical example of that. Mm-hmm. So that's definitely, it's definitely meant, it's definitely meant for you to think about it. Um, the props, you know, we talked about the magic briefcase, which is an awesome plot device. Um, the Deathly Hollows necklace is a fun little nod to where you're like, again, if you're paying attention, and this is another, going back to, yeah, you should probably have seen the first eight Harry Potter movies or at least read the books before. Otherwise that means nothing to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you just have the book is mentioned. You don't, so we don't see the fantastic boost, uh, books, uh, book, but it is, oh, Talk hey, that's the book that, yeah. yeah, this is the thing that caused this whole movie to be made. So <laughs> that's kind of a fun nod. So kind of like getting to the end of this, what, what did you think about the ending with the magic rain? Um, well, it's, it's do sex machina big time. <laughs> it's beautiful. I, I really like the visuals of it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's in slow motion and it's the music is beautiful. And, you know, the witches just, and wizards volunteer to walk out there. I'm not sure how it helps the people that are indoors. That's kind of weird. I'm just, I, I go every, with it, but I always go. Everyone's out there. They're all looking. <laughs> Everyone, every single person is That's out right. there. Um, it is a little bit of a, yeah, it, it, yeah, like I said, it's, it's a little, it's a little bit of, of laziness that's lazy writing um deadpool <laughs> but um i don't know what do you think i feel like it kind of hits the emotions well if it mm-hmm. even even if it doesn't like make the most sense like in the moment i'm kind of willing to like roll with it 
um, it's it's tough watching my boy Dan Fogel uh, get his memory wiped uh, or Fogler. All right. Yeah. But uh, you know, and that's I think that's kind of the the sad final note that you're kind of you know leaving with for me because he was he was really the the most fun for me. It, and I think like I was thinking about why, and it's because uh, Kowalski's he's the person who's new to the world. You're experiencing kind of the wonder of the world through his eyes again. Mm-hmm. And you miss that with the later Harry Potter film. You don't have that same sense of wonder because you're kind of in the world. And that's what one of the best parts of this film is, is, is that sense of wonder and amazement. And you don't get that without Kwaski. So it's it's sad for him to walk out into, you know, the rain and the goodbyes and everything. And so yeah. I, I, I yeah. emotionally I think it it was hitting the right notes, although I think if you try and dissect it, it doesn't necessarily hold up. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good way to look at it. Like emotionally, and I didn't have that criticism the first time I saw it. I was just like, oh, that's beautiful and what a great way to fix it. But yeah, he's you know, Kowalski's us. Right. Mm. And so, you know, the movie's almost over. It's time for us to go. Yep. We're leaving the magical world. Yep. Um, and that's why you have, you know, the coda at the end where it's kind of like, hey, there's going to be a sequel. Right. Which is, again, for the audience, it's totally what that is. Because if, and if you start to think about that too much, you're like, Queenie, you are totally screwing this up. Like, that is not okay that you went back and did this. Like, morally speaking, this is, this is a problem. But again, don't think about it too much mm-hmm. because it feels good Yeah, at this point for us. Yep. I did have, so I have a, a couple of other nitpicks uh, just here at the end. And I wasn't sure where to put them. Um, I did feel, again, on subsequent rewatches, there's a little bit of a bait and switch thing with the obscurus, obscurial thing with the mythology where they're very much like, no, it has to be a kid. It has to be a kid. It has to be a kid. And they're like, no, guess what? Now it doesn't. We broke our own rules. It's that's a tough one because like Credence is supposed to be kind of a, an extraordinary person, right? Mm-hmm. And so I mean the the whole premise of like Harry Potter is that you have you know you have the killing curse and it doesn't work one time. Right. So it's you know this kind of thing I guess does kind of have precedence in this That's true. This, that's uh, that's a good point. story, right? But I I I get what you mean where it still feels a little cheap by, by the end of the movie where it's like, you know, you're setting up X and you're setting it up, setting it up, setting it up, setting it up. And then it's Y and it's like, okay, I I'm surprised, but that's not really, it's not as earned as it, as it could be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Again, there's a billion moving parts in this film. So again, I thoroughly enjoy the movie. But that was just a thing that always just kind of, uh, kind of rubbed me the wrong way mm-hmm. a little bit. I do want to say this is this is my kind of like my last final thought is that uh, I've just I recently reread Deathly Hollows, and this is another reason why you should read the books and watch the Harry Potter movies before you watch this one is because there are so many wonderful little Easter eggs for this film in that book. There's so much of the lore about. Grindelwald and the greater good and all of these things. And, you know, we're going to see Aberforth in the next movie as well. You know, Dumbledore's brother. 
And so it's really building on a lot of that. Just kind of, it's almost seemed like random throwaway plot threads in the Harry Potter book that is, it's kind of becoming the basis of these new films. And so I highly suggest if you have not read those books or if you haven't read those books in a long time, like there's a lot of stuff that's coming that's pretty much been already laid out for us. It just kind of has to fit within those framework. For instance, spoiler alert, Grindelwald doesn't die. You know, he's still, an, he's an old man by the time we get to Deathly Hallows. So there's going to be some twists and turns before we get there. But um, a lot of the stuff, having seen this movie and then reading the book a second time, I was like, oh my gosh, all of these things, even some of the creatures like Nifflers and Botruckles and whatnot, um, just kind of adds another layer uh, for your enjoyment. So as we close, we just want to say thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to connect with us, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook. Email us at readingbetweenreels at gmail.com or use the SpeakPipe app on our website. And speaking of the SpeakPipe app, we have a voicemail. We have, yeah, we have a voicemail. We do from our friend Corey. So uh, we'll go ahead and play that now. Name's Corey. Longtime listener. First time calling. All right. You ever think that Zack Schneider's Justice League has Superman die at two hours and 38 minutes and 38 seconds and be resurrected in Justice League at two hours, 38 minutes and 38 seconds at the exact same moment. You would think perhaps, what if creation to Jesus's death and Jesus's resurrection to the end when he comes back again is the same symmetrical pattern? That would be kind of cool. That's the kind of thing that you get with Zack Snyder. You get movies that have like a powerful message hidden. If you don't believe me, go look at the end of Batman versus Superman when Superman dies and you see Wonder Woman and Batman dropping, lifting down Superman's body. And there's three crosses in the background. Zack Snyder did that stuff intentionally. The savior of the people died and sacrificed himself for the world. It's very powerful symmetrical or uh, very powerful patterns that Zack Snyder puts in these things that, that people don't realize. So these are great movies. Well, I mean, I agree with that. Yeah, no, Matt's, Matt's a little, I, I, I actually, <laughs> I, I do agree that Zack Snyder, yeah. uh, I, I agree with Corey that Zack Snyder, you know, hides these things in his film. In fact, he's hides them so well that it's a struggle to find them. <laughs> So but that's why we're here <laughs> to help pull those out. So yeah, not me, thanks though, for that, Corey. Yes. Thank you. Oh, Corey, my God. And yeah. So guys, if you're listening and you have thoughts like that or about any of the films that we're talking about, please, please send them to us there. Just click on the website. It's super easy to get to uh, as it's also super easy to leave us a review on your favorite podcast catcher. It's not hard at all. It's right there. And yeah, guys, we just want to hear feedback. We'd love to hear what you think about the show and those reviews just really help us get the word out about the podcast. Uh, you also have the option of joining our Facebook group. Uh, it's a safe place to share your thoughts, discuss all things related to movies, ask us questions, and make comments about the show. And on a final note, the next episode that we will have will be a review of Sam Raimi's Army of Darkness. Send us an email or voicemail about your favorite moments from Army of Darkness, and we'll share them on the next episode.